Well, welcome online church family. Just wanted to just start just our service together and just uh, take just a second and just a pause before we go into worship and just acknowledge just all what's going on in the world and just so much heaviness I know on so many people's hearts uh, for the folks in Ukraine. And I uh, just want to just take a moment just before we dive into worship, just to lift them up in prayer and to kind of set the stage for our time of worship as obviously clinging to the Lord even during difficult time. Let me just pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, we just come to you right now and we're just uh, submitting this whole situation to you, God. We are so thankful that you're on the throne and that you're reigning and ruling. And our prayer and our hope is that this may even be a, a season, a, a time of catalyst where people recognize their desperate need for you, God. I do ask that you'd be a source of refuge, that you'd be a source of strength, that you'd be a source of encouragement, uh, that you'd be uh, just the, the, what so many people are desperate for, God, in these moments and during this difficult time, God. And so we just uh, submit the whole situation in Ukraine over to you, God, and just plead for your involvement, plead for your rescue. Even before now, we worship you in song as in these times where we don't know how to fix things, that seems like the only thing we can do is to worship you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.
So as I mentioned, it's a communion week. And before we sing this song, just to kind of prepare our hearts for communion, I wanted to bring to your attention the idea of the table in Scripture and what it represents. The table or the banquet feast comes up hundreds of times in Scripture. In fact, it has to do with some of the most famous Scripture. You don't really think about it. He prepares a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Song of Solomon says, he sits me at his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. The idea of the table in scripture is the place around which uh, the children of God experience the fullest blessings of God's kingdom. The table, a meal, a banquet, a festival. That's what that symbolizes in scripture over and over and over again. And all of that scripture, every time it comes up, Jesus tells a parable about a banquet feast and the guests that didn't want to show up and who he's going to go get instead. It, the, the table is a significant uh, image in the scripture. And it all kind of comes to a head uh, the night before, uh, you know, the, the trial and the crucifixion, the Last Supper, where Jesus gathers his disciples around a table and says, spoiler alert, uh, when you gather to eat and drink together, uh, you're really feeding on me. You're feeding on my spirit. You're feeding on the blood that I'm going to sacrifice. They didn't quite get it at the time, but that's what he was trying to teach them. And so we as Christians, when we gather around the table uh, for a meal, uh, it is still a symbol of, of our unity, of our community, our blessing in the Lord. Uh, and when we gather at communion, uh, it's the same thing. It's, it's a, a much deeper uh, experience. And so uh, I was chatting with Pastor Scott and we were thinking about, uh, you know, this is the last weekend before the election and it's probably going to be contentious and continue to be contentious for a few weeks on end and we pray settle down and be decisive. But um, I'll bet there's a bunch of people who just are not feeling like, let us gather at the blessing table. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I don't feel like that. Um, so we wanted to uh, prepare for communion this week by, by singing this song, The Blessing, that's, that's come to mean a lot to people in 2020. And even though it's not really like a typical communion song, um, we want to invite you to remember what the table symbolizes in the scripture. It is the full bounty of Christ's promise of the kingdom that is here and yet to come. Um, Jesus is still serving meals. Whatever happens, you know, whatever, whatever, um, whatever is going on in our country, um, Christ is setting the banquet feast for his family and wants us to gather and remember him. And so we're going to try and do that. There we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace sing that together again the lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. May it be in his name.
favor be upon you in a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you in a thousand generations and your family and their children and their children and their children may his favor upon you and a thousand generations and your family and their children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and their children and their children and their children may his presence go before you and behind So we gather at the table and may his favor be upon you and your children for a thousand generations. As we gather, we remember that the reason we have this hope for a brighter future, for a better redeemed heaven and earth is because of Jesus Christ, whose body was broken for you and nourishes us and feeds us today in our spirits, in our lives. Eat and remember Jesus Christ. This fellowship that we can enjoy as we celebrate God's bounty is made possible by the blood that he shed because in our unrighteousness, we cannot have communion. We can't share the table with the Lord. He's too holy. And um, through the blood of Christ, we were made able to sit down uh, like children at their father's table and celebrate everything that's good and wonderful in our world. Um, Drink and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Let's sing it one more time together. Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us, and thank you so much for joining us online. Chris here, and I have just a couple of things I'd like to bring to your attention. Uh, first off, uh, we are so thankful that uh, you have clicked on our video and, and that you're doing church with us, and uh, we love uh, to be able to do church with you. Uh, so we just hope and pray that it is a blessing for you throughout the week. Uh, well, as you know, we as a staff, we love praying for you, and uh, we would just encourage you to text your uh, confidential prayer request, your prayer requests, to 97,000. Uh, you can do it at any time, and uh, we would get them. We will get them, and we'll love uh, to be able to pray for you. Uh, well, 
There is a lot going on at Agora Bible Fellowship. A lot's happening. Uh, tons of different ministries and weekly happenings. And if you are interested in knowing some more information or, or if you would like to have more information, our website is like the best place to go. Uh, you can visit us anytime at agorabible.org. And if you're on the website, you'll notice that there is a Give tab and uh, you can make a donation there. Uh, as you know, uh, our ministries are um, are here because of your financial generous support, and we would be so grateful if you would uh, prayerfully consider making a donation. Well, before we get into God's Word, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Well, Father, we are so grateful um, for the fact that we uh, get to send these videos out, that we get to have church with people uh, that are in different cities, different states, and throughout our country and many countries. Lord, we thank you uh, that you're a God of faithfulness and that you listen and hear us, Lord. Uh, we pray for the next few minutes as we open up your word, Lord, that you speak to us, that we hear you. And uh, make it clear to us what you want us to, to get out of these next few minutes. Or we love you so much. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your unending love. We love you so, so much. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much, worship team. Hello again to everybody out there. Hopefully you're having a fantastic day. I just want to start by saying, happy March. Just soak in every day. It is the greatest month of the year. Hands down, March is the best. So just want to say, enjoy it. Enjoy it while it's here. Um, before we get started, I actually have a couple of items of business that I just wanted to get to very quickly. Um, the first one is that uh, Lindsay and I have had a bunch of people um, just asking us questions about our family and family planning and, hey, when are you guys having another baby? And our kind of our general response has just been, whenever the Lord's ready, we're ready. Um, so just wanted everybody to know that that the Lord is ready because we are pregnant again, having another baby. So exciting. If you could be praying for us, that would be really great, um, but really fun and excited to announce that. Uh, baby Antioho is due in September. New baby and Holly are going to be about 17 months apart. So yeah, we could definitely use some prayers. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, the next thing is uh, really it's maybe not as exciting for us, but potentially it's more exciting for you depending on, on who you are. Uh, but the day has finally arrived, my friends. The day is finally, finally here today when we are going to discuss the order of Melchizedek. That's right. This dude has shown up multiple times over the last few weeks and we just keep pushing it off. And today is the day we get to hang out and chat about Melchizedek. So, so fun. Uh, if you've been one of those people that's just been waiting, uh, careful what you wish for. Like buckle up, get ready, because we are going to school today and doing, uh, we're doing some learning. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't know what your associations are with school. If you're one of those people that really enjoyed learning, like that's cool, whatever. That wasn't me, but whatever. Uh, that being said, I do have some really positive associations with school growing up. Like in middle school, thinking about like the fun activities and hobbies uh, that I had. That was kind of like, man, such positive memories. Anybody have a Tamagotchi? Remember those? Those were the coolest. Oh, man. Uh, high school positive associations with sports, um, playing on the different teams, in college, dorm life, pranks, etc. I could tell you stories for hours about college pranks in dorm life. Um, I won't bore you. Well, maybe just one. Maybe just one. Uh, and when I was in college, uh, my freshman year, we decided it'd be a good idea to try and catch a goose, a wild goose. And we were successful in our endeavors. Uh, I can tell you the longer story later of how we actually finally caught this goose. But I jumped on this thing, caught it. We rubber banded its beak and we carried it into the girl's dorm and let it go in the bottom of the girl's dorm. And it was just flapping around, pooping everywhere. It was amazing. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't not give you a little taste. Um, so I get that none of those are related to learning specifically. However, there are absolutely times when I've 
definitely enjoyed learning, even though I'm not like a, oh, just, I just want to learn all the things. Give me the books. Let me read. Uh, definitely not me. But whenever something is relevant, uh, important, and useful, man, I'm all in. Like, I, I'm very interested in learning in those scenarios. I would argue that most people are. And the beautiful thing is that today's material is all of those things. Important, relevant, very useful. Uh, and so even though it's going to be a little bit more academic, uh, man, it's going to be such good stuff as we get into it today. Uh, my guess is that for many of you, this will be, uh, there will be at least some brand new information. Uh, for myself, personally, as I was going through, man, I learned a bunch this week, uh, which was really cool, and I'm excited to share it with you today. So, throughout this letter, uh, this letter, uh, the book of Hebrews that we've been going through, uh, we've been learning about the Lord's master plan his master plan that he set up to make things right between himself, a holy God, and us, sinful humans. So early on, he established this flawed and temporary system with priests and sacrifices, really just setting the stage for the perfect and permanent solution that was going to come next. If you remember... I'm going to take you on a very brief journey back through what we've been talking about. But back in chapter 2, we talked about priests and sacrifices. We said that one role of a priest was to make sacrifices for the people. The purpose of the sacrifices was to serve as propitiation for sin. If you remember, if you're with me. Propitiation, we said, is just a big word. Generally means payment, but there's a reason why we use the word propitiation instead. If you're interested, go back and watch a number of weeks ago on chapter 2. Then in chapter 5, we learned about the high priest and how the high priest's primary role was to serve as a representative and a mediator between God and the people. The main way that he did that was that he and only he could offer the highest sacrifice. The highest sacrifice was made once a year in the Holy of Holies. That's the room behind the veil. And it was on the Day of Atonement. The highest sacrifice was for all sins, for all people, for the entire year. Again, it was intentionally designed, this old system, to be flawed and temporary. God's intention was that when Jesus came and fulfilled the role of the high priest, and he did away with the old system, it would blow our minds. That was the original intention. But in order for it to blow our minds, we had to be familiar with the old system and what was going on. Today, what we're doing, Melchizedek, it's just adding another layer of mind-blowingness. But in order for it to blow our minds, we have to understand what was going on. We have to become a little bit familiar with Melchizedek. So, Jesus was not just the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. Wasn't just that. Because he wasn't just a regular high priest. He was something much, much more. He was a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray for us, and we're going to get into our text for today. Uh, dear Father, um, Lord, just thank you so much uh, for a chance to be together, even online. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you just speak through your word, that you'd say what you want to say. Um, Lord, I pray that it would just be a great time uh, just learning about Melchizedek. And I pray that you just kind of bring it to life and uh, really just show us your intention, the big picture behind what you were doing with Melchizedek. And we're excited to just kind of go along on the journey together. Lord, we love you. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you would, flip with me to Hebrews chapter 7. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. And uh, while you are turning there to Hebrews chapter 7, I uh, just want to give you a little bit of a previously on. I don't know if you watch any shows that have like the previously on right at the beginning of the, of the show. Um, I watch a number of those, and I don't know about you, but I desperately need those. And I think we need it here. Because the author of Hebrews is expecting the audience, right, as he's, as he's writing through here in chapter 7, he's expecting us to know a couple of things. First of all, he's expecting that we're reading through this and we understand the flow of the letter, that we've heard him talk about Melchizedek for the last couple of chapters. He's gone some other places and now he's coming back. 
Bigger than that, he's expecting that we have a working knowledge of this obscure story back in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 in the Pew Bibles here at the church is 994 pages before our text today. So it's basically at the complete opposite side of the Bible, and yet the author is kind of expecting we know what he's talking about here. In case you are not familiar with this story that is only four verses long in Genesis chapter 14, I'm just going to fill you in a little bit. So to set the stage, Genesis chapter 12, rewinding even a few more pages, Abraham or Abram is called by the Lord and the Lord says, hey, I want you to pick up, I want you to leave your family, friends, this place, everything you know, I want you to follow me. Follow me to where I'm leading you. So he does. He obeys. He picks up. He takes his wife, Sarai, and he takes his nephew, Lot. Takes both of them. Lot is kind of an interesting add-on, if you ask me, but he's there. They go off. They're following the Lord, and uh, man, the Lord just blessed them. The Lord blessed them financially to the point where Abraham and Lot had to separate because uh, they had too many animals. Like they couldn't graze all the animals that they had in the same place. So they separate, some time passes, and after some time, there's a war that breaks out in the land, and these bad dudes, uh, one king's name kind of sounds like a Pokemon, and uh, some other bad dudes, they come and they abduct the Lot and they take all of his possessions. Abraham hears about it, grabs some guys, go and rescue them, and that leads us up to our short, short story that we're going to read in Genesis chapter 14, just four verses. So that sets us up where we're going right now. Genesis 14 verse 17 says this, after his, that's Abraham's, after Abraham's return from the defeat of Charzard and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the King's Valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, exclamation point. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right. You are caught up. You have all the background. Are you ready to get into this section? Let's do it. Here we go. This first section is just focusing on how Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Okay, this whole first section, that's our focus. Melchizedek's priesthood, superior to the Levitical priesthood. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, uh, a tenth part of everything. Sound familiar? Genesis 14. Boom. Now you see you're already in the know. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So mysterious. So, so mysterious. I think the first question that comes up whenever anybody's talking about Melchizedek is who is this dude? Like who is Melchizedek? And it's a very valid question because truth be told, we don't have a whole lot to go on. We really don't. Really all we know is that he's a good Canaanite king and he's that the king of Salem King of Salem, Salem being a term for the city of Jerusalem, actually. So that's what they would have called Jerusalem uh, back then. Uh, pretty interesting and significant as we move down the line. Just kind of store that one back there. So that's about it. That's about all we know as it pertains to his identity, especially if you look there at verse 3. But just because we don't know a ton in regards to his identity 
does not mean that we don't know much in regards to his significance. The author is contending that Melchizedek is incredibly, incredibly significant, and he'll expand on that as we go along. But for right here, right now, all you need to know is that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood in a number of ways. Here in these first few verses, gives us four ways, and then we'll see a fifth way here in the following verses to come. Uh, those five ways we're going to dive into. The first way that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood is that it's royal. It is royal. So, uh, as mentioned, one thing that we actually do know about Melchizedek is that he was a king. Verse 1, Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the most high God. He was both priest and king. He was both priest and king. So, how is that superior to the Levitical priesthood? Well, that priest-king combo never would have been true under the Levitical priesthood. Never in a million years. Levites were forbidden to be kings. They were set apart as a priestly tribe. It was mutually exclusive. They could not be king. It's as if, uh, it's as if Holly were to come to me and say, Dad, I am both a Bears fan and a Packers fan. And I would say that is impossible. It is mutually exclusive. That is forbidden. That is the story with the Levitical priesthood. It's identical to that, basically identical is what I'm trying to say. So, Interesting to note, uh, before we get on to the next one, is that both Zechariah and David prophesied that the Messiah would hold this dual role of priest and king. And we're going to see how that kind of plays out here in a little bit. So the first way Melchizedek's priesthood is superior is that it's royal. The second is that it's universal. It's for everyone, regardless of nationality, whereas the Levitical priesthood was only for the Jews. So if look here in verse 1, you'll see the title that's used here for God. Uh, here it's translated Most High God. And in Hebrew, that's El Elyon. Uh, El Elyon. Melchizedek was priest of El Elyon. Yes, that's the same God. That is God the creator. That is Yahweh. However, it is distinctly different in the name that is being used for him. Distinctly, distinctly different from the names that were uniquely associated with the old covenant of God. The names that would have been used were names like Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai. Uh, under the old covenant, the Levitical priests ministered only to Israel and only for Jehovah. Melchizedek's priesthood, however, was universal, ministering both to Jew and Gentile alike. The third way that his priesthood is superior is that is not hereditary. There in verse Three. So, truth be told, when I first read verse three, <laughs> I was like, what in the world is going on? It's, uh, it's pretty confusing, right? Read this. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. It's like, what in the world is going on there? Uh, and it's not just confusing for me because this verse has led to speculation as to who Melchizedek was. So some say, and mainly based on this verse, some say that he was an angel that just took human form. Uh, others say that he was Jesus, like actually Jesus pre-incarnate. Um, as you look into either of those options, um, doesn't seem like the arguments really have uh, much backing. They're not really very convincing. Um, and so therefore, the vast majority still believe that Melchizedek was just a regular human being, a uh, good Canaanite king that lived during the time of Abraham. Uh, but if that is the case, the question still remains, what in the world is verse 3 talking about? Like, what do we do with that? If he's just a regular human, how could he be without father or mother? Um, 
And it was neat kind of just like digging in and learning uh, this week. The author is absolutely trying to get at something here. The author is trying to get at the fact that the book of Genesis is filled with these genealogies. Genealogies all through the book of Genesis. And yet here we have this great priest king with no genealogy. Like something doesn't add up. What is going on? The author is trying to, hey, come on, look, look a little bit deeper, deeper. Um, the Levitical priesthood was completely dependent on lineage, completely dependent on lineage. It's called Levitical or Aaronic, Aaron, Aaronic for a reason, right? In order to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. And more specifically, you had to be from the line of Aaron. And yes, they absolutely did background checks. That was a prerequisite. You could not be a priest if you did not come from that line. And so here we have Melchizedek, this priest king without a genealogy. What is going on here? It doesn't make sense unless, unless the Lord is trying to make a point. The Lord's trying to make a very specific point, and the point is this. Melchizedek's priesthood is not dependent on his lineage. It's not dependent on his lineage. When you start putting the pieces together, it becomes quite, quite clear that the Lord intentionally omitted this information. Not only did he omit information uh, on who Melchizedek's parents were, illustrating the fact that his priesthood was not hereditary, but he also omits the dates of his birth and death, which illustrate the fact that his priesthood is eternal. So a Levitical priest would serve for 25 years from the age of 25 to 50. That was the service of a uh, serviceable age of a Levitical priest. Uh, didn't matter how able-bodied you were at 50. Didn't matter how prestigious you were, how good at your job you were, how amazing of a priest you were at 50. You're done. Early retirement. Boom. We done. Like that's it. Um, collectively, uh, the Levitical priesthood was also temporary. If you're around a number of weeks ago, we talked about this. And just to refresh your memory, uh, it's pretty incredible that the Lord ordained it that a mere 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. That's in the year 70 AD. The temple, which was the only place that sacrifices could be made, no longer existed, and therefore the sacrifices stopped, never to return again. Again, since shortly after Jesus' sacrificial death, there have been no sacrifices and therefore no need for a Jewish priesthood. Remember us talking about this? Isn't that wild? So it was a very temporary thing. What this passage is not saying is that Melchizedek is still alive somewhere out there, that Melchizedek is this eternal being. No, that is not the point. However, the lack of information that is intentionally given about his death symbolizes the fact that his priesthood is forever, and that is significant. Man, it's like you read through this and pieces start coming together and it's like, oh, it's so smooth. It's almost like it was like planned. It's almost like all the pieces just fit so perfectly together. Uh-huh. So the first four of, uh, that we've just seen there were all contained in those first three verses. And now the author is going to take uh, a few more verses to illustrate the fifth way in which Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And that's going to be in his talking about Abraham's tithe and blessing. Starting in verse four, we're going to continue on. See how great this man, talking about Melchizedek, See how great Melchizedek was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, exclamation point. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers through the, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute, verse 7, that the inferior Abraham is blessed by the superior Melchizedek. 
In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, the Levites, but in other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. It's Melchizedek. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right. Come to me. I know that that's a lot of words, um, but the argument is fairly simple. And so here it is. In verse 5, the author talks about how God prescribed 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel to pay a tithe, to pay a tenth of their income to the 12th tribe, to the priestly tribe, to the tribe of Levi, yes, good answer, you were listening, well done, Uh, and he notes that this Genesis 14 situation with Melchizedek and Abraham, he notes that that was before this whole system of tithing was set up, but yet Abraham still tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek then blesses Abraham, and in verse 7, the author says, it is beyond dispute. It is beyond dispute. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And then he continues to argue in verses 9 and 10 that the priestly tribe of Levi, which will come through Abraham's loins in just a few generations. Of course, I had to say that word yet another time because when else do you get the chance to? So in a way, Levi tithed to Melchizedek. See what we're doing there? He uses the transitive property, right? I told you we were in school today, people. Transitive property. The argument is this. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than Levi. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. You with me? Well, for you visual people, uh, I figured since we're in school, uh, it might be helpful to have just a little visual. And so check this out. I made you a nice little slide. Boom. Right there. See, it all makes sense now. You're with me. So truth be told, personally, I don't think this number five point is like on its own, this like fantastic mind-blowing thing. But when you combine it with the other four, with all the other arguments that the author is making, man, I think is a pretty strong case as to why Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical one. However, that is not the end goal of the author's argumentation. That's not it. The whole point isn't just to prove that Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. That is just the foundation. Just the foundation. The point of all of this is not to argue that Melchizedek is amazing. Melchizedek is just a type. He's just a type. Josh, what is a type? What are you talking about? So, in biblical study, a type refers to something that's imperfect and temporary from the Old Testament that then predicts or points to something perfect and eternal in the New Testament. Make sense? Something from the Old Testament, imperfect, temporary. It predicts, it points to something that's perfect and eternal in the New Testament. So, a good example of that, uh, a type would be the bronze serpent. If you're familiar with the story from Numbers chapter 21, uh, there were some serpents around uh, the Israelites. People were getting bit. And uh, the Lord instructs Moses to make this bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And as the people get bit, if they look at this bronze serpent on the pole, they were healed. What is that a type of? It's a type of Jesus on the cross. As we look to Jesus on the cross, we are healed. We are saved. Um, That is a type. And Melchizedek is also just a type. He's just a type of Jesus. He's a type. He's this imperfect, temporary human that points to the perfect and eternal Jesus. You with me? All right. Verses 11 and 12. Let's take a look. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For there is a change in the priesthood, 
For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So, here in verses 11 and 12, the author contends yet again, the old covenant, the old system, the Levitical priesthood is only intended to be temporary, and his argument goes like this. God would not have ordained the priestly order of Melchizedek if the old Levitical priesthood was good and meant to stay. Would not have. Because the priesthood and the law are so united, the priesthood and the law, conjoined, combined, cannot be separated because they go hand in hand. If there's a change in the priesthood, the whole system needs to change. That's just how it's set up. So on the other hand, as we talked about, we kind of got the typology. We got the type of Melchizedek um, in the first section. That intentional lack of info that the, God, that the Lord gave us regarding Melchizedek's life and death that eternality that we talked about, man, that symbolizes the fact that his priesthood is eternal and that's just the type. The real thing, Jesus's priesthood is literally eternal. Literally eternal. Jesus is still alive today. The resurrection not only confirms his eternal priesthood, but it also speaks to his qualification, which then the author goes and speaks about that here in the next few verses. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. All right. We're, all, we're, we're getting there. You guys are doing fantastic. So Jesus was a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. No, he did not come from the line of Levi, as was required in the old system. He came from the line of Judah. Jesus came from the line of Judah. Uh, it's predicted that Messiah would come through the line of Judah. So the lack of info that the Lord gave us about who his parent, Melchizedek's parents were, symbolizes the fact that his priesthood had nothing to do with lineage. It didn't have to do with his, uh, it was not hereditary. Uh, his qualifications are not simply based on geology. Rather, they're based on who he is. On who he is and the power that he holds. Jesus' qualifications are that he's Messiah. He's God in the flesh. The power that he holds is the power of an indestructible life, as the author of Hebrews says, the resurrection. All right. Then, verse 17. This is probably my favorite part of the whole thing. Uh, so, check this out. Verse 17, just a single verse. The author here references an Old Testament passage from the book of Psalms. Verse 17 says, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's Psalm 110, uh, a verse from Psalm 110. That's actually the only other place in all of scripture that Melchizedek is mentioned outside of Genesis 14, which we talked about earlier, and outside of the book of Hebrews. So there's a couple of interesting things about uh, Psalm 110. So the first is that uh, it's pretty universally agreed upon that this is a messianic passage. It's talking about Messiah. And the other cool thing about Psalm 110 is that it prophesies that Messiah would be both priest and king. So, uh, Again, I think one of the coolest things about this whole thing is back then there was this teaching going around um, that they were anticipating two different messianic figures. Uh, one would be a priestly messianic figure, uh, a messiah of Aaron, and two, a kingly messiah of Israel. So the priestly messiah would come obviously from the line of Levi and would kind of be in charge. And then the second mess messianic figure would come from the line of Judah, as was uh, predicted, and would be subordinate to the priestly Messiah. 
Interesting, like if you think about it, they could not conceive in kind of the old way of thinking, could not conceive of a situation in which a priest could be king, but yet they knew that the Messiah had to come from the line of Judah. And so it's like, how do we make both of these pieces fit together? And the only way they could do it was the idea of having these kind of like dual messiahs. Um, And so the author of Hebrews is kind of like dropping this bomb of just like, hey, let's put all these pieces together here. When we look at the order of Melchizedek and the fact that Jesus comes this way and that his, uh, uh, his priesthood is not determined by his lineage, it does not depend on his genealogy, all of a sudden, all the pieces just come together so beautifully because then Jesus checks all the boxes. He checks the Messiah box, the priest box, the king box, comes through Judah, and all of the boxes are like checked in one foul swoop. And it's this amazing, just like, just like beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, the last few verses. Verse 18 For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest by an oath and by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. All right, class. I, uh, <laughs> at this point, maybe we need like a little five-minute break and uh, just stretch it out. I was that student growing up where, uh, man, I had so much energy. Like when I was memorizing stuff, I was like walking. I was pacing around the table. Uh, my fifth grade teacher actually let me sit in the back of the classroom so I could stand at my desk and do my work. Like I was that kid for sure. So if you need to like stand up and do like five jumping jacks right now, go for it. Now's your time because uh, we're about to wrap this bad boy up. So the home stretch. So in these last verses, the author says, man, the old system, the old covenant was flawed. It was weak. It was useless in comparison to the new. It it was designed to keep men at a distance from God. But the Lord never promised that it would be forever, right? That's what he's saying here. There's no oath. He did, however, promise that the new, better covenant would. It would be forever. Again, he cites there Psalm 110 saying, you are a priest forever. And Jesus himself is the guarantee. So, man, I I understand that's a whole lot of information and a whole lot to take in. And uh, man, a lot to kind of dive into. But I think that there are um, three pretty uh, great takeaways for us today. Uh, the first one is specifically in regards to Melchizedek. Man, Melchizedek is uh, a mysterious, mysterious dude. Hopefully, it's become a little bit less mysterious today. Uh, it's still a little mysterious, but in a good way, you know, as we kind of put the pieces together. Uh, worth mentioning that the only command in our entire passage today was back in verse 4, saying, See how great this man Melchizedek was. And the Greek word for see is to like gaze at, to discern through careful observation. We are to carefully observe Melchizedek, but not because it's about him. It's not. The only reason Melchizedek is significant at all, the only reason I would contend he's even in scripture at all is because his priesthood predicts and points to Jesus and Jesus's priesthood and the new covenant. Jesus's priesthood uh, is different from and vastly superior to the old Levitical priesthood. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing that I think is a really cool takeaway is, man, just how amazing God's word is, how comprehensive it is, um, how authoritative it is, how the Lord has this whole plan like ahead of time and how he even uses scripture like Hebrews chapter seven to then go and explain Genesis and Psalm and how all of it comes together and points 
towards Jesus, the entirety, all of Scripture, unified as one, coming and telling the story of Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament alike, it comes together and paints this beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus. And lastly, uh, the last thing that I think is just a really cool takeaway is from verse 19. Uh, verse 19 begins to speak about the new covenant. So we're going to be talking about the new covenant here um, in days and the weeks to come. Uh, but I just wanted to point out one quick line. It says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Um, I received just this past week, actually just within the last few days, I received two different health updates of people that been praying for, um, and they ended completely opposite directions. Um, just a couple of days ago, got word from uh, about a buddy of mine that uh, was a part of a church plant when I first moved out to LA, was at a church down on the west side, and uh, this guy had moved away with his family and uh, just been dealing with some health issues for a while. And yeah, some other health stuff came up. Uh, fairly recently, and they sedated him uh, to try and just keep things going. And while he was sedated, he had a stroke and he passed away. Um, just a couple of days ago, uh, leaving behind his beautiful wife and little 12-year-old daughter, um, just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, on the other hand, uh, I just got uh, an update just today, actually, um, if you remember, I was telling a story a couple of weeks ago when I was up preaching. I actually told the story twice uh, as a joke. And uh, about the guy who came to me and had a family member that was not doing well and not looking like he was going to make it through the day. And just got a text today that that family member, after being in the hospital for six plus weeks and dealing with lots of just junk while in the hospital and ups and downs, uh, is doing better and looks like he's going to be released here pretty darn soon. And I was just thinking about that in relation to what we're talking about here. What like, if you were to boil down kind of why we learn all these things about Melchizedek that point to Jesus, that talk about this better hope, that talk about drawing near to God, this new covenant that gives us the opportunity to draw near to God. And in both of these situations, modern day, in both the situation with my friend that just passed away and with this family member that is just um, going home from the hospital, man, the call and the opportunity and the best route in both scenarios is to draw near to God, is to rely on this better hope that we have. That's all we have to cling to. Um, man, that better hope uh, is because of Jesus. Um, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what we're going through, whether it's on the good or, or on the bad, um, the fact that we can draw near, um, it's, uh, man, that's all we have to cling to. That's all we have to, to hold on to. Um, so, uh, man, Melchizedek, uh, hopefully just kind of helps paint a better picture, a more bright picture of that hope that we have. So I hope that you enjoyed, uh, our little class today on Melchizedek, uh, to summarize, I have one final slide for you. And I think it kind of explains the whole thing. Boom. There it is. Look at that. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Um, Jesus is the greatest. Let's pray. Uh, dear Father, um, Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that it is this amazing unified story, uh, all pointing, all roads lead to Jesus. Um, thank you that you use um, scripture to interpret scripture and build upon and help uh, build this robust understanding of what you did and uh, that changeover and how right now in our world, it's easy to be like, yeah, I understand new, new covenant versus old. I get it. Um, but man, uh, just understanding the intricacies and the depths of what you're doing there. Um, just thankful for Melchizedek and uh, a little bit clearer understanding. Uh, Lord, we pray, um, yeah, that that would be uh, just an amazing, cool reminder in our own hearts as we move forward. Lord, we love you. 
um, so much. We thank you for time in your word. And uh, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. church. Again, thank you so much for being here. We love you. If there's anything that we can be praying for uh, this week, we'd love to do that. So please uh, go ahead and text that to 97,000. We'd love to just be praying for you. Uh, Otherwise, have a great week. We hope to see you very soon.